Good morning, everyone. It's really good to see you all. Um, so great to be with you again today. I think it's about six months since I was last here, um, which was really early days for you guys then. Um, but no, so good to be back with you. Um, your new lights look great, and it's good to see you all. Um, it really is, like, I hope it's not lost on you, just how much a privilege and encouragement it is for me to be here and see all you guys here, to see such tangible evidence of, of God building his church um, is amazing. Um, we haven't forgotten about you all over in East. Um, you're frequently in our thoughts and our prayers, um, so be encouraged by that. And uh, yeah, we're thankful for you guys and, and we love you. So. so like yourselves over at East, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount um, over the past few weeks. And uh, as John preached last in this series, um, he kind of flagged up that we're probably waist deep at this stage in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so this morning, we're going to wade a little further into Jesus' teachings um, in this portion of Scripture. We took a break last Sunday uh, for Easter Sunday, so let's just quickly kind of recap where we've been um, in this first chunk of the Sermon on the Mount. So as Lucas introduced over in East, and as Andrew's been teaching uh, over in South here, um, we started the series um, and, and we saw straight away that the Sermon on the Mount can be described as both a silhouette of Jesus and a blueprint for the Christian life. Lucas helpfully pointed out for us that, that as we read the Sermon on the Mount, it should be like a mirror for us. As Jesus is explaining all of these principles to us, it should correlate with our lives. We should, as we grow more mature in our faith, see our lives matching up ever increasingly more with what Jesus is teaching us here. And that has to be the challenge for us as we work through this. It's the same challenge Jesus was presenting to the scribes and the Pharisees in his original audience. And so we began the series looking at the Beatitudes. We saw a unique blessing and a deep sense of contentment that Jesus promises to all of those who follow him. This is the happiness that's found in true holiness. Um, it, it's the first fruits of the full blessings that we're going to receive in glory. And following this, Jesus goes on to explain the, the role that we have on earth, utilizing the qualities of salt and light that he has put in us, um, which have been given to us through the transforming work of his spirit. And he then goes on to explain that he's not come about to bring any new teaching, but rather to fulfill the law. And then most recently, um, over the past sort of month or so, we've explored the first four antitheses that Jesus lays out for us. Four areas of our lives where Jesus fully explains what obedience to him and to the law looks like. And in the context in which he's speaking, Jesus is challenging the scribes and the Pharisees and how they have interpreted the law, their own keeping of the law and their very view of themselves. And that's the same challenge that he presents to us. And so with each of these antitheses that we've looked at, Jesus has taken an area of life and he's not invalidating the command of the law in regards to that area, but he's expanding it. He's explaining the extent of what the law requires from us. And as he does this, we see him unpacking what he tells us in verse 17, that it was to fulfill and not to abolish the law that he came. Each of these sections begins with Jesus saying, you've heard that it was said, before he makes reference to a particular Old Testament law. And at this stage, I think it's not hard to imagine the scribes and the Pharisees sitting kind of pretty smug here, sort of nodding their heads and thinking, yeah, we know, that's, we, know, we know what it's been said. We're not the murderer and we haven't done this, so we're good, right? Wrong. Jesus, he's not saying that, that what they think the law has said is wrong, but rather he's saying it's right, but I'm going to show you the higher standards in which it has always been intended. 
the true and original expectation and requirements of the law before it had been twisted and distorted by the religious leaders of the day. So Jesus says, you may not only murder, but you also must not react with the kind of anger that could lead a man to murder. And every time Jesus does this, every time he says the words, but I say to you, he's highlighting that the law only deals with the external. Jesus is explaining that what he calls us to is a radical reorientation of our lives. See, the Pharisees were only concerned with the external appearance. But as Jesus explains in these various contexts, that while our lives should look outwardly like those who follow him, the kingdom of heaven is more concerned with the internal and a complete obedience that's brought about only through a transformed heart. And as he explains how this impacts various areas of our life and how we keep the law in those, we see that following Christ and his commands requires a further reaching obedience than that of the Pharisees, which is what Jesus is talking about in verse 20 when he says that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So keeping that in mind, it shouldn't be lost in us just how crucial a part of Jesus' teaching that these passages are. And that kind of brings us up to our passage today. Um, as we move into verses 38 to 48 this morning, we'll round up this section of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to enter into these last two um, antitheses and these, these two areas of life in which Jesus redresses the ways in which the law had been distorted by the scribes and the Pharisees. John Stott says that in these two final antitheses where the sermon, this, this is where the sermon really comes to a head and they're some of the most famous, most resented and most admired verses in the New Testament. Nowhere is the challenge greater, Stott says, nor is the distinctness of the Christian counterculture more obvious and nor is the need for the Holy Spirit more compelling. And something that's been highlighted several times in this series so far is the fact that the words of the Sermon on the Mount are some of the most well-known and most well-recognized parts of the Bible, both among Christians and non-Christians alike. But as we've also seen, and as many scholars have pointed out, it's also high up among the least understood and least obeyed parts of the Bible. And these 10 verses that we're going to look at are even by the standards of this passage, even more well-known and often even more taken out of context by people across the world. Everyone from William Shakespeare to Arcade Fire and a whole heap of others in between have quoted these verses at various times. As we've looked in the past few weeks at anger, lust, divorce and oaths, we've seen again and again that it's transformation of the inside that genuinely matters. And what that internally transformed life looks like is again in these verses powerfully illustrated by how it impacts the areas of life that Jesus is talking about. And those areas are retaliation and loving your enemies. And again, as we read through these verses and look at these areas, Jesus is again raising the bar. He's continuing to up the ante and further explaining the standard of what's required in our interpersonal interactions with other people. John Piper has gone as far as to describe the following verses, some of the most controversial, difficult, and radical commands that Jesus has ever put on the world. But before we just dive into that, it's important just to remember a couple of things um, before we kind of unpack that. 
So Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that the Sermon on the Mount is not to be regarded as a comprehensive code of ethics uh, governing our conduct as Christians, but rather, as we've already seen, Jesus is using these examples, which are really specific and really contextualized, uh, to demonstrate or emphasize the spirit of the law. So it's, it's not in place as a go-to guide, but it's Jesus emphasizing the spirit of the law and what our default attitude should be towards others. Jonathan Pennington then writes that uh, Jesus' specific illustrations do require certain localized wisdom to interpret. So he says that Jesus uses these examples to help us grasp just how radical the reorientation of our lives Jesus requires. And as we'll see, this is a reorientation which requires us to think of ourselves very differently, to abandon our own rights or any claim that we have to rights of our own. And as Jesus unpacks what this reorientation looks like, we're going to consider it today in the form of three calls, three things that Jesus calls us to in our relationships with others. So let me pray before we go any further. Heavenly Father, by the power of your Spirit, speak to us this morning. Challenge us, convict us, and encourage us to be ever more like your Son. For it's your, for your glory we ask this. Amen. <clears throat> so first point, first thing that Jesus is calling us to, um, we're going to find in verses 38 to 42, and that's to react without retaliating. So verse 38 reads, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So it's, it's rightly been pointed out um, that it's kind of odd if you have an ESV Bible in front of you um, that this, the title of this section is, is retaliation when the emphasis is firmly on not retaliating. Um, but as we unpack these verses, we see Jesus following the same pattern as before. He quotes the Jewish Old Testament law, or rather how it's been interpreted by the Pharisees, expands on this interpretation, and then he gives us some illustrations of how this plays out in certain contextualized scenarios. And we've already mentioned how well-known some of these verses are, but definitely an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth are probably some of the most quoted verses in the Bible across the world. But here Jesus is referring to Leviticus chapter 24, verses 17 and 20, and he's describing what has become known as the lex talionis, the law of the talon. This is a principle found in Levitical law, which was designed to help the courts administer justice. And it, it did that by doing two things. It defined an appropriate punishment and it limited retaliation. And this is the very principle that's gone on to define, define the basis um, of Western legal systems to this day. And as always, the law is addressing an important issue here, the danger of unrelenting retaliation. We may not be experiencing it to the same degree now, but certainly older members in our church have witnessed firsthand in our cities and in our communities what happens when back and forth retaliation doesn't stop. Even in the past weeks, conflict with roots dating back decades resulted in a bystanding journalist being shot dead during riots. 
And so it must be said that the principle here is an essential one. But what the Old Testament context makes clear, however, is that the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was an instruction to the judges of Israel. It was to be administered by the courts for the public realm as a check and a balance for a state legal system. The scribes and the Pharisees, however, took this principle, which was intended to be restrictive, and turned it into something that they actively sought to enforce. They extended this principle from the law courts where it belongs to the realm of personal relationships where it did not belong, and then used it to justify personal revenge, even though this was the thing that the law explicitly forbade and which this principle was instituted to abolish. And it's at this point that Jesus says in verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So contrastingly, Jesus is saying that, that this is not good enough. This culture of getting your own back, repaying like for like, defending your personal honor is not something for his followers to partake in. Now, it's also important to kind of note at this stage that, that this is not Jesus advocating a new law of absolute pacifism um, where, where we don't resist any evils in the world. Many scholars over time, including Leo Tolstoy and Gandhi, have read this, passages, this passage and interpreted it this way. But Jesus was not criticizing the use of this principle in its intended realm, but rather rebuking the Pharisees for their incorrect use of it. So if we walk out of here today on the Hay Park Avenue and find someone being mugged, it's right that considering the whole counsel of scripture that we have a duty to intervene in whatever way appropriate to protect the victim. And that subsequently the perpetrator should face appropriate state sanctioned justice. Lucas was sharing with us last week over in East about um, his travels to Turkey uh, just over the past few weeks. And he, um, he shared with us that he quite naively questioned during his trip why the hotel restaurant um, that they were using every day was so popular with Turkish police officers. He was then, of course, told that they were there for the protection of him and the other pastors that had gathered for that conference. And this, of course, is an appropriate and a right response to the evil of religious persecution that many Christians in Turkey experience. See, the evil that Jesus is talking about here is found in personal interaction and in relationships. He's talking about the evils of slander, of insult or false accusation, defamation, damage to reputation. And what does Jesus command us to do? Do not resist. Jesus then gives us some illustrations of what this looks like. A slap to a face in any culture is regarded humiliating. Um, Sarah and I have a two-year-old at home who's recently decided that a swift slap to her parents' face is an appropriate response to being told that she can't do something. Um, so we're kind of used to that one. But um, a slap to the right cheek as we see here, um, it, it's implied in that that it had to be carried out by the back of the hand, okay? And the backhanded slap was up there with the greatest insults in Jewish culture. But Jesus says, when this happens, turn to him the left cheek also. 
in Jewish litigation, the tunic being the undergarment, maybe the shirt that you would wear under your coat could be sued for. So if somebody had wronged you, you could sue him for his shirt, for his tunic. However, someone's outer garments, their cloak or their coat couldn't be legally claimed. And this was basically to protect the person being sued from the harsher climates of Middle Eastern nights. But to this, Jesus says, to him who sues you for your tunic, give him your cloak also. Walking a mile then, the next example, this was something that any Roman officer could at any time require a Jewish subject to do in order to carry weight, to transport goods, to carry equipment. But just think of how incredible humiliation this was to essentially have to facilitate the force occupying the land you lived in. On completion of your mile, the Roman would then find another subject to commandeer to go the next mile. But Jesus says, walk with him two miles. Jesus goes on to command us to give to the one who begs of us and to not refuse the one who asks to borrow. So what is the theme running through each of these illustrations? What's the consistent thread that's here? What we can see in all of these contextualized examples is that followers of Christ are to live lives marked by humility rather than pride. The world says you're entitled, you're even expected to defend your honor, to stand up for yourself, to hit back. Somebody does you wrong, fight back, get your own back. Nobody has the right to take anything away from you. But Jesus says, my followers must have a higher motivation, a higher standard and a higher purpose than defending their own honor. Particularly, this is the case when humiliation comes at our expense for the sake of the gospel. And in that context, think of the Apostle Paul for a minute. Um, If you can, if you've got your Bibles there, turn briefly to Philippians chapter 1. And Philippians chapter 1, um, verse 12, Paul, who is, is, is writing from imprisonment at this point, says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. See, Paul saw that in his humiliation, in the attack on his rights, there was still a right way to respond and a way to seize an opportunity for the gospel. Paul grasped the principle found in Genesis 50 that what man means for evil, God can mean for good. Paul did not strike back. Paul remained committed to his calling. He wrote letters, he sang praises, and he must have been the most annoying man to try and lock up for the sake of the gospel. If you want to know what happened as a result of this, you only need to read the book of Acts, but the very fact that we are standing here thousands of years later is a bit of a spoiler. But the ultimate example that we have to look to in this, in not retaliating and not striking back is our savior. Think for a minute of the humiliation that Christ bore on the cross for us. When reading of turning the other cheek, it's hard not to cast your mind to the prophecy in Isaiah 50 of Jesus suffering. Isaiah 50 verse 6 reads, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus did not seek to defend his honor on the cross. 
he willingly humbled himself to the Father's will. But it was the Father who defended his honor. And so the Father defends ours as we know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, the one who humbled himself ultimately, is Lord. Isaiah 50 goes on, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me, who will declare me guilty. See, in the Christian life, there is no place for retaliation, for retribution, or for revenge. The only thing that these things do is to pull us into sin ourselves. And there is no sin committed on us that justifies a sinful response on our part. Instead, we are to trust God in his perfect judgment, acknowledging that vengeance is his and that he will deal with those who harm us. All sin has been or will be punished, either on the cross, and we can't improve on that, or in hell, and we can't improve on that either. And so we must remember that vengeance is not ours. So when we feel under attack, when we feel like our rights are being impinged, when we feel that someone wants to take something that is rightfully ours, don't seek to repay evil for evil. Respond in such a way that shows that our real honor is found in following Christ. Passing up your rights as the world may see it to be produces questions that are an opportunity for the gospel. Al Mohler puts it this way when he says that our unexpected reluctance to retaliate will raise a question mark in a secular society. When we forgo our rights as the world would see it, a moral advantage is gained for the gospel. Giving that which we are not required to give should be the default attitude of our hearts. Whenever we're asked to give up our time, our money, or even our possessions or our reputations. So, as we've seen in verse 38 to 42, Jesus gives us a call to react without retaliating. It's a reactive command. And now we see in verses 43 to 47, the second call that Jesus issues to our lives. The call to actively love others. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And here Jesus is once again ramping up his teaching and his complete and thorough interpretation of the law and that interpretation reaches further into our lives and our interactions. I know that if I'm being honest, there's times when I'm not even so good at loving my neighbor, never mind my enemy. An enemies isn't a word that we may commonly use, um, but what does it mean to have enemies um, for us in the 21st century? Because John Piper says that as Christians, if you don't have any enemies, your godliness probably is not showing very well. And what he means here is that as we take biblical stands against worldly things, as our lives declare that Jesus is Lord and show that our honor is found in following him, 
it can only be expected that we become increasingly more maligned. And so it's in this context that Jesus is calling us to love our enemies. As he does this, he's referring once again to the Old Testament command found in Leviticus in chapter 19, verses 9 and 18, to love your neighbor as yourself. But see there that there's no second clause in this command and definitely not one to hate our enemies. So how then had the Pharisees arrived at this interpretation of the law? I think this can be in part described by looking at some basic human social behaviors. We as humans instinctively know how to distinguish between friends and enemies. This begins in childhood. Like you look at the playground and uh, primary school kids, even kids in nursery, know who who are their friends and who aren't their friends. And many scholars have argued that we have an ingrained sense of self and of other. Okay, so as fallen humans, we naturally define people by their otherness. Viewing ourselves as a norm and anything that is different to us to any degree as the other. Scholars would argue that this influences then our attitudes and our actions towards all who fall into this other category. And we've seen over history the extremes of how this has played out. Kings and rulers and governments that have marginalized certain other groups to the point that they've been viewed as an enemy. Even how we interact with with sport gives us an insight into this. Um, I wonder if you ever thought about why during the Six Nations a good weekend sees Ireland win, but a great weekend sees Ireland win and England lose. And we can see this playing out in the Pharisees' interpretation of the law here. The addition of hate your enemy was very much implied by their sense of self and who they are and who they viewed as other. They read Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor, love the one who is like us, and applying this rationale to it, arrived at the conclusion that if we're to love our neighbor, well, our opposite of our neighbor must be our enemy, and the opposite of love is to hate, so love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But once again, Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is once again that the, saying that the Christian's response should be the opposite of what is expected. As sinners, we want to get our own back. We want to see our enemies getting their due. But Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you, not just that they would stop persecuting you, but for their good. There's to be a complete contrast in the way we are to behave when we are wronged to how non-Christians behave. So why are we called to love our enemies? Why is Jesus putting this call on our lives? Simply as Jesus goes on to explain, because this is the example of our Father in heaven. Verse 45 reads, For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And what Jesus is saying here is that through what we know as common grace, God displays a degree of blessing and of provision to all men and women, even those who are not living in relationship with him, even those who are opposed to him. And so if God is actively good to those who are opposed to him, then so should we. We must also remember what John, sorry, 1 John 4.19 tells us, that we love because he first loved us. God saved you while you were his enemy. We didn't befriend him first. And so it's only possible to love our enemies when we've experienced this love ourselves. This love doesn't come by a moral reflex. It's not our instinct. It's not in us. 
but rather by the transforming work of Christ in our lives. This is the only thing that can explain overcoming, not overcoming evil with evil, but overcoming evil with good. And so as we love our enemies, we're gaining a family resemblance. If the father is like this, then so should be his children. Jesus is calling us to live this way, not primarily to be happy or fulfilled, although these, as we can see, will be inevitable outcomes, and not because we have worked it out that this is the best way to go, but rather because there is a right and a wrong way to live. And we only know this right way by knowing the character of the Father. Verses 46, 47 reads, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And when Jesus cites tax collectors and the Gentiles, uh, here he's explicitly revealing why our reactions in these scenarios are crucial. Here we are displaying ourselves as other or as different and a different that cannot be explained naturally. You see, there's no demonstration of the gospel in doing what, merely, what the world merely expects us to do. Sinners even know that this is what they should do. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he says that even the tax collectors and the Gentiles know how to love their neighbor. Speaking to a Jewish audience, this could not have driven the point home more. Tax collectors who were one of the great scourges of the Jewish people and the Gentiles were the ones who didn't have any of the religious heritage or the scriptures. Even these two groups knew to love their neighbors. And there's no righteousness to be gained in doing only this. Most of you won't remember this or even be aware of it. I definitely don't remember it because I wasn't born. Um, but on November 8th, 1987, an IRA bombing left 12 people dead in Enniskillen Town Center. Gordon Wilson and his wife Joan lost their 20-year-old daughter Marie that day. And that evening on national news on the BBC, Gordon gave a remarkable interview. He gave a tragic account of the bombing and how he tightly held his daughter's hand under a pile of rubble. And then he said the following. He said, don't ask me for a purpose. I don't have a purpose. I don't have an answer, but I know there has to be a plan. If I didn't think that, I would commit suicide. But it's part of a greater plan and God is good and we shall meet again. I have lost my daughter and we shall miss her. But I bear no ill will, I bear no grudge, and dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. But Gordon goes further. He then told the BBC that he forgave her killers and added, I shall pray for those people tonight and every night. How incredible is that? When we love everyone, including our enemies this way, we do so because we are to live doing the right thing and because our ultimate goal and the object of all of our ambition is to be like Jesus. Jesus says when we treat even our enemies like this, we are again gaining an opportunity for the gospel. And in this, we know that there is a reward for us spectacularly beyond the worth of anything that could ever be taken away from us in this world. 
So when that family member or that work colleague who has been so vocal and active in their disagreement with your faith and how you've chosen to live your life, when they find themselves in a time of need or trouble, make sure that your attitude towards them and your willingness to love them hasn't been affected by their actions towards you in the past because this is what they will least expect. So we've been called to respond without retaliating and to actively love even those who are opposed to us, overcoming evil with good. But, and as we begin to kind of close here, there is a third call that Jesus issues, us, issues to us in verse 40. Verse 40 reads, Therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's kind of heavy. That's... As we hear this command, it's, it, there's an obvious problem. Okay, when we think of what perfection means, we think of something with no flaw, with no imperfection, and with no means of improvement. These are all qualities we know are true of God, but are not true of ourselves as fallen creatures born into sin. It doesn't take a vast knowledge of the Bible to know that, or to know the importance of the fact that God is perfect in every way, and we are imperfect in every way. We can understand God's perfection and our own imperfection, but yet Jesus calls us to be perfect. And again, consistent with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, this is not a new command. We can see this again in Leviticus in chapter 11, verse, verse 14, where it reads, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls in the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. We, of course, ourselves can't be holy in the same sense that God is, or perfect as God is perfect. We see throughout the Old Testament that this is only achieved, this holiness and this perfection is only achieved by perfectly keeping the law, something which in itself is unachievable. But through the good news of the gospel, we see that the Father is not only the just, but the justifier as well. By the grace of God and the indwelling Spirit being united to Christ, we are growing into holiness and into perfection as followers of him. Because the perfect sinless life that Jesus lived and his death and his resurrection, by these we are justified only by grace, through faith in the one the only one who is as righteous as the Father. And through this, the perfect righteousness of Jesus that he imputes to us, that he puts on to us, by that righteousness, when the Father looks to us who are in Christ, those who are walking in his ways and following his commands, he no longer sees our imperfection, but he sees the perfection of the Son. And in this sense, when God looks to us, he sees perfect As I said, the ultimate goal and object of all a Christian's ambition is to be like Jesus. And we thank God, we should thank God that his word tells us one day we will be like Jesus when we see him as he is and we'll be made perfect and we will sin no more. But until then, Jesus is telling us here in the Sermon on the Mount that we are never to stop striving and we are never to settle praying that the Holy Spirit will continue to work in our hearts so that we'll be more perfect than yesterday and we'll be more perfect in the future. And as we live out all that Jesus is commanding here and do so more and more, we are becoming more like him 
the one who came and perfectly fulfilled the law that we could not keep. So Jesus laid out for us in this passage and in the previous sections that we've looked at what it looks like to be a true follower of him in these areas of life. And Jonathan Pennington writes that the Sermon on the Mount isn't so much law, but it is gospel. Jesus is inviting us into life in God's kingdom, both now and in the future age. This is grace. No one can perfectly perform the vision of this sermon except Jesus, but this doesn't mean that it's irrelevant to our lives. By faith and through grace, Jesus is inviting us into a practical life of discipleship. We participate in and imperfectly imitate his father-trusting, kingdom-awaiting way of being in the world. And as we do participate in this, as we participate in this father-trusting, kingdom-awaiting way of being in the world, we are being like Jesus. We are becoming more perfect as we follow his example of living in a broken world. When we love our enemy, when we give even that which we are not required to give, when we don't hit back, these are all demonstrations that Jesus is our satisfaction. We don't need revenge or security. We only need Jesus. And by responding to others in the way he calls us to, we're demonstrating his immeasurable worth. As this whole Sermon on the Mount has shown us, our lives externally should radically demonstrate the radical transformation that has happened to us as Christians. And in these areas of life that Jesus has unpacked for us, when our actions are governed by this, our responses are so unexpected by the world that the world cannot fail to notice that we are different, we are set apart. And God is truly glorified when even the world in their sin has to say it must be because they are Christians. And so as we close, maybe this will be helpful. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is claiming his divinity. And as he does this, and as he does throughout the gospel, he's declaring his lordship. And this was hard for for his original audience to understand because they didn't have the benefit that we have of having a full Old and New Testament. But as he does this, and as he's teaching, there are subtle ways in which he claims his divinity and declares his lordship. When he says, but I say to you, when he then expands on the law in this way, he's covering ground that no ordinary rabbi had ever done. And in verse 40, when he uses the name of the Father, something which Jews never did out of reverence, he's declaring his oneness with the Father. So Jesus is flagging all this stuff up here. And as Lucas pointed out for us over in East last week, that it's not actually until Jesus meets his disciples after his resurrection that Thomas then is the first person who responds by explicitly declaring Jesus' lordship when he says the words, my Jesus, my Lord. So as we leave here today, consider for yourself, does my life in the ways in which Jesus has laid out here declare his lordship? And by his Holy Spirit, may we do this by showing his love to others and becoming like him increasingly more. Let me pray for us.